to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I gotta be honest, I am stoked to bring you this episode today. Today I talked to Isaac Morehouse, who's the CEO and co-founder of Crash. And Crash is pretty much product hunt for job hunters. This is one of the most insightful conversations I've ever had. I thought I was an authority on the future of work and education until I talked to Isaac. I am so excited for you to hear this, and if you have any interest in the future of work, future of education, Isaac, I would argue, is the most knowledgeable person in the world on this topic, because he's been thinking about the future of ed, future of, uh, you know, future of work for the last six, seven years. So with that said, let's get into this awesome podcast. Run it! Isaac, how's it going? Hey, it's great to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I'm really, really excited to to be talking to you today. And you know, with that, let's just dive right into what you're working on. So tell me a little bit about Crash. So Crash is a career launch platform, and our goal is to help turn the job hunt into an event. And what we mean by that is to kind of bring it out from this sort of black box where you kind of, you go and get your resume and you make sure it's all formatted. And it's just, you know, sort of very, very same, same stale static list of things. It looks very similar to everybody else's. You, you make sure it's not horrible. And then you go blast it out to like 150 places and you wait and you don't know what's going to happen and you hope they get back with you. And we're trying to do two big things there. One is to say, forget this boring resume that doesn't do a very good job of selling you and build a profile that you can really show off your skill, your ability, software tools you're familiar with and create projects that demonstrate your skill. And then actually actively, openly, publicly market and campaign that profile. Go out there like if you were launching a new product or if you're launching a podcast or a book. What do you do? You go and ask your friends, hey, I launched this thing. Go to Amazon. Give it a review. Go give it an, uh, you know, a five stars. Go share it with your friends. Turn your job hunt into that. Hey, check it out. Here's this video of me pitching my dream company. I would love to work there or anywhere similar with my skills in design and marketing share this, give me feedback, let me know if there's anybody you know that's hiring for something like this and turning it into a, an open process where you're really marketing your skill and ability, it does a number of things. One, it puts you in the driver's seat and you don't feel so passive, like you're just sort of waiting and hoping something good happens. Um, so, it, And it gives you like this sense of confidence and fun and it turns a job hunt into kind of a campaign. Two, it lets you access information about roles you otherwise would never find. One thing we find, especially with early careers, people go scan a jobs board, and if they've never worked in a particular industry or setting before, they don't know what any of this stuff means. Job postings are not very good uh, at explaining to an outsider. So if you're like a 21-year-old kid who's real sharp and good with people and eager and aggressive, and you live in kind of a small town like I did, you don't know about startups and stuff like that, if you're going to go browse jobs and you see business development representative at Drift, well, you don't know what Drift is. You don't know what SaaS is. You don't know what a business development representative is, but you might be a perfect fit for that. So if you contrast that 
and you broadcast your skill and ability. Hey, I'm great with people. I built this project here. I always got the highest ratings from all of my customers and the best tips when I was a server at this restaurant. I taught myself how to create a YouTube channel and I did X, Y, and Z. I'm looking for something in these three cities. If you know anything, I'm willing to work hard. Let me know. Someone in your network might see that, share it with someone else. Say, hey, you know, your buddy at Drift is saying they're hiring a bunch of people for customer success or BDR roles. And you might come across something that you otherwise would completely miss because you didn't see it. So that's, I, I got way deeper on that than uh, I wanted to when you just said, what is crash? But <laughs> that's how excited I am. No, it's good. I, I love it. Um, when, I, when I saw a crash, I think I saw a retweet of like from Mike Maples or something on Twitter. That's how I found out about it. Um, and you guys, and I think it's fascinating. I guess what change uh, prompted crash what changed in the job market what change in education like like where did crash come from yeah crash was born out of my previous company praxis which we started about six years ago which is a startup apprenticeship program so we have a uh digital boot camp that's all remote trying to teach people for like entry level non-technical roles people that are skipping college and doing this instead because they want to get into their career and so we're you know teaching them the basic skills software tools and how to present themselves and how to especially given that they don't have experience and don't have a degree how they can show employers something that makes those irrelevant so creating a bunch of projects and things like that a digital profile um, and pitching companies and so we're, we're doing this with Praxis, helping people kind of build that and then placing them in six-month apprenticeships at startups all over the country. And in that process, just kept seeing so many patterns about the way people approach their own kind of human capital, both building it as well as selling it. And it's this very like, it's the schooled approach really is where it comes from. It's okay, I'll just follow the rules, follow the curriculum submit something to a single individual authority that will look at it behind closed doors. No one else will ever see it. And they'll come back and give me a grade. And when you try to take that and apply it in the broader world, the way that the world is, is going with gig based work, shorter term, you know, tenure at jobs, people are, it's much more common to be a remote worker, a contract worker. The individual has a lot more autonomy over their career than they used to, but they're still kind of approaching it in this very, like, I met the minimum criteria. Here's my resume. Let me know when you're going to hand me a paycheck approach, which is just not working. There's just the signal to noise ratio sucks. And so seeing that with, with Praxis, we thought, can we take some of these core ideas that we're doing in this very intensive year-long program, and can we create a platform to help millions of people do this and to help people start to think about themselves as sort of me incorporated and say, hey, I have a brand. And, and one of the things I notice in the world is I think the professional world is like one of the last to adapt to technological changes uh, in a weird way. And so you usually see like entertainment is usually on the cutting edge of, of utilizing new technologies and then kind of people's social life and friends life. And then it takes a while to work through. And so when you look at the way that people utilize the networked age, when it comes to, let's say dating took a long time. It was weird at first. People didn't like the idea of posting their picture and about their personality on some dating app and kind of marketing themselves to find potential people to, to, to pair up with. But now it's very, very common. People are very comfortable with it. If you're, if you're supporting a charity, people do Kickstarter campaigns and they're very public. They openly share, here's what I'm all about. Again, if they're launching a product or a book or something like that, 
or even just, you know, um, sharing their, their thoughts on the latest Netflix series. But when it comes to the job process, it's still very hierarchical, authoritarian, like, I'm just going to put this application into this application system and hope that the robots don't reject me in the first cut and I get an interview, you know, um, and then I'll get a chance to sell myself in the interview. And we're saying, let's apply the same logic, just seeing how easy it was for us to take people 19 years old, no degree, no experience, and have them put together a simple project that maybe they spent 20 or 30 days on researching a company, putting together a project for them, sending it to them with a tailored pitch and saying, I love your company. I made this for you. Immediately, they jump to the front of the line. Immediately. And versus just sit, they would never get through an application tracking system if they just sent it in some, you know, automated system. So we were seeing that and we thought, hey, let's, let's try to create a system where more and more people can do that more easily. And that was kind of the genesis of Crash. So it's a combination of like culturally more and more people are like realizing that just a college degree alone doesn't signal much. Technologically, it's easier than ever for somebody to create a high quality video or some sort of project. Not, not just if you're in design or coding, even if you want to do sales, you can make a sales podcast, you can create content that shows your skill. And now we have the networks that let us kind of amplify that and, and hopefully help it, you know, get dispersed and, and, you know, find, find people who are third degree connections of ours. So it's kind of a confluence of those, those elements happening that I think makes now the right time. Yes, absolutely. I like all of that. That kind of leads me to, to another question though, about, you know, you have these institutions that have been around for, for a long time, you know, Harvard, Stanford, Arizona State University, like these different colleges. And I'm kind of curious if the, if the trends are going to, hey, like it's actually don't go through the system, actually go outside of it, do your own projects and skip the line. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what happens to top tier schools like Harvard and Stanford. And then like what happens to good but not top tier schools? Uh, what, what do you think happens to the higher ed institution as these changes are occurring? Yeah, well, a great way to be a uh, tweet that didn't age well is to make predictions about what's going to happen based on technological <laughs> changes, but I'll do, I'll do it anyway. Um, I, I look at what happens to the news industry, and I, I think there's something similar in the higher education industry that we're seeing unfold right now. Um, as soon as the internet came out, people are like, you know, some people were like super excited. You get the initial hype. Uh newspapers, traditional news media is dead. And they were right, but it didn't happen in some dramatic moment. And the way that it happened was the really big players who had a, a high brand power, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, etc. Um, they figured out how to stay around, how to adapt and how to leverage that powerful brand in this new era. All of the like, mid-tier, smallish local newspapers, they were the ones that just got decimated, but it happened slowly. And what happened is all these individual newsbreakers, journalists, citizen journalists, whatever, on all these different platforms just started to proliferate and just like slowly push those out. I think the higher education system is going to be very similar. There are certain very highly specialized or very highly branded where it's like, hey, it's a filtration mechanism. And if you get through the filters and get accepted into Harvard, 
we are basically guaranteeing to plug you into the Harvard network. And if there are certain things you want to do, like work at Goldman Sachs or whatever, there's a handful of things where that really makes a lot of sense. Those are probably going to stay around and largely be okay or adapt or start doing what they do, give away a lot of their courses for free because they realize no one's paying for the courses anyway. They're coming in there for that brand, for that network. So some of the top tier, I don't expect them to do much besides start to try to take advantage of a lot of these changes, which many of them already have. Um, I think it's all the like generic mid-tier, like that's like I went to Western Michigan University. It's just utterly it's just like a degree factory. You just buy your piece of paper because you're terrified that if you don't have one, you'll be a loser and you'll be homeless, right? That's literally what kids do. Like they, don't, they may or may not enjoy the college experience as a consumption good, but that signal, they think they have to have it. That's what's changing. Now you realize, well, okay, even if I have it, no one's hiring me because of it. Uh, I need something more. Well, if I'm gonna take the time to build something more and I build a stronger signal, suddenly no one cares about that in the first place. So how about I just skip it? And that's where I think you just see a huge hollowing out of a lot of those just bloated, inefficient. I mean, there's so much subsidization and all this kind of bad incentives that, that have made it survive so much longer um, than it would have in sort of a truly free market. But I think that's what you'll see. So you'll see a lot more tailored, individualized approaches to what, what do you need to get started in your career? You need to have skills and you need to be able to signal those skills. Those are the two things you need. And the best way to, to get relevant skills to the job market is certainly not to go get a communications degree from a generic state university. And the best way to signal the skills is no longer to have BA in communications listed on a piece of paper. And so once you lose that, college as a consumption good becomes a pretty damn pricey uh, notion. So I think, I think that's where you, you kind of have the unbundling of the university experience. Like maybe I do want to have, I'm not ready to sort of start getting serious about my career. Maybe I spend a year or two living with some friends in like a campus like environment that doesn't have any classes or tuition, but maybe we've got like rent and community activities and I'm, or I go do a, a backpacking trip, whatever. And so you've kind of unbundled the social experience. And then maybe I've got an apprenticeship or some online courses or whatever for the knowledge, for the, for the skill building component. And then for the signal, hopefully you go create a crash profile and, uh, <laughs> and go out and, and do that. So that's kind of what I see. And you can see it. These things are getting sort of chunked off one at a time. And there's a lot of little competitors popping up here and there. I would love to dive into the first of those chunks. It's something that I've spent actually not that much time thinking about um, until recently, but the social component of college, I, you know, I've been in talking to a lot of people, uh, you know, about, about the benefits and downsides of college and whatnot. And one thing that I haven't figured out is if people don't go to college and, and they, they, they go another route that is going to be just as good, if not much better, ha what happens to the parents that are like, just get out of the house and, and, and get social and make friends and mature? I, I, what companies are working on that? I'm actually intrigued because I, I don't know of any yet um, who's working on the social experience of college. That's a great question. I, I get really excited thinking about the possibilities there. So the landscape right now, you kind of have, you have a couple options. And if you really are like, hey, I want that social experience, there's, no, there's nothing stopping you right now from moving to a college town. Say, mom and dad, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to teach myself to code or whatever and work on the professional side, but I still want the college sort of experience 
So instead of paying 50 grand a semester or 20 grand in tuition, uh, I want you to just help me pay to rent or even buy a house in a college town, rent it out to five roommates, and uh, maybe you flip it when you're done and you even make some money. Who knows? But you, you can move to a college town and spend a couple years having the whole experience without that. Now, not very many people do because there's still this feeling of like stigma, like I got to just do the thing. But I think that's one approach. But then once you realize that, it sort of opens up like, okay, if I could kind of tailor make my social experience when I transition away from living in the town I grew up in and, you know, going to high school with the same people into what I do the next couple of years, how would I, how would I do that? What are some of the attributes that I want? What are the things that would make that cool? And you start to think about all the possibilities. I get really excited. I imagine like, like a WeWork or uh, even like an apartment type complex saying, Hey, we're, we're building a campus and it's for people who are, maybe they're starting a company. Maybe they're taking online courses or teaching themselves to code. Maybe they're gig workers, like the ones that, that you guys are, are helping out with your platform. And they want to have some sort of like a campus like experience where they've got, they've got uh, people in their peer group and maybe it's like uh, you pay a, you know, you get your parents cause if you're not old enough to get a lease on a, you know, you get your parents to pay for a two year lease on this campus place where you're living in. You can either do it in a dorm with a bunch of people that you get assigned to, or you can have an individual apartment or whatever. Um, and kind of just creating like a social and living space that has all the best elements of a campus. I mean, heck, universities that start to fall apart, they could start leasing out there. They've got a lot of them have beautiful properties and campuses. Just start leasing them out to co-working spaces, co-living spaces and saying, look, we have the facilities, uh, but you don't care about the classes or the credential anymore. How about we just sell these, the beautiful campus itself as a, as a service? So I think there's a lot of stuff there that, that I could see unfolding. What, what we found with our Praxis participants, most of whom were opting out of college and doing this program, you know, the six month boot camp is all remote. And so they are either living with mom and dad or they've picked a city to live in um, and they're there with a few friends. And there is definitely like a, a hunger for building that social experience. And so they, they do a great job of doing it virtually. And we even have participants get together and they'll, they'll use some streaming service to like watch a movie together live um, in, from different locations streaming. Um, and then, you know, vit, travel to each other's cities, get together and try to get some of that virtually, which you can get a lot more than you used to. But then there's still, there's like this component of, of the Praxis experience we found where it's like, this is one of your quests is to learn to create for yourself a social environment that you like, where you can thrive. And rather than kind of just plugging into a prefabricated one, which let's be honest, uh, the college social experience is not always healthy and beneficial either. Like it, ha it can be, but can also be like lead to bad habits. It can be kind of destructive. There's a lot of issues there. So if you kind of have the chance to say, I'm, I'm going to be deliberate about it. I'm not just going to inherit a prefabricated social structure that I plug into. I'm going to go ahead and try to make this happen myself. It takes a little work at first, but the payoff is huge. We found participants like getting really creative at meetup groups and, and, you know, trying to, to, to manufacture a cool social environment for themselves. And I feel like the people that would go through practice in the first place are the, are the people that are most equipped to do that, to like take on the challenge. Oh, like I am not going down a traditional route of college. I'm going to solve this social problem by, by, Looking at this, looking at my city, and looking at all the options, you know, the, these high agency people—they're always going to figure something out. So very cool. 
Uh, well, what, cool. What, what have you yeah. found with, I know you work with a lot of gig workers. Is there like a, a, a window there, an opportunity there for gig workers to find a sense of community, you know, cause the workplace, everybody like, you know, working remote and all this stuff, but there's a sense of like the water cooler and like the workplace social environment that some people value. What, what are a lot of the gig workers that you know doing to kind of substitute for that in the professional side or the personal side? So to answer that, I would say that one of the biggest challenges with, with freelancing, you know, with gig working um, is freelancer loneliness. It is a, it is something that many people don't think of, you know, but it is one of the biggest conversations kind of happening among challenges outside of the, the basic finding customers and keeping customers. It's like this one on the side that is there, but never important enough to really talk about that much. Um, the way that I, I, mean, I think it's very important and it's a problem that I would like to solve at some point. Uh, and what I'm noticing is the way people make up for that is through Facebook group or Slack, Slack communities. There are tons of Slack communities and Facebook groups for freelancers, for writers, you know, for designers. They go in there, they have conversations. You know, the better communities have have conversations like this where you have an AMA with an expert and you get FaceTime with people. Um, but nothing, uh, I have a sense that I don't think anything replaces uh, replaces working with having coworkers, you know? And, and I think if someone, whether it's, uh, whoever it is, if someone can build like, hey, like it feels like you have coworkers, even though you're remote, that would be a huge innovation and a company I would want to invest in or build myself because um, it is a big problem. So you turn gig loft into a literal physical gig loft where you can get your uh, loft apartment with other gig workers. Uh, <laughs> it's um, it's so funny you say that. We've we've considered having like gig lofts as offices, you know, around, but there's um. I, we, I've never, up until just 10 minutes ago when you were talking about the social experience, I actually never thought of building like a physical almost campus where you, you don't, you know, you do your, your gig loft curriculum and you do your own specific track designed for you, but you do it in an area where everyone else is doing it too. That's, that's fascinating. I, I might explore that. <laughs> Don't, don't call me angry if you invest a bunch of money in physical real estate and then lose it all. For sure. there, there's something there, I think. I know WeWork yeah. is kind of going down that route. So I'm excited to see what unfolds. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, well, um, I'll keep you posted. In regards to, um, so going back a little bit to this idea that if you, you know, are a 17-year-old, you know, 18-year-old, and, and you, you see the trends, and you don't want to go to college, and instead you're building these skills, you're doing these projects, you're, you're listing on crash, you know, you're doing all the right things. At what point is it potentially too early to start optimizing if, the, if you know you're not going to, uh, you don't want to go to college? Like, for example, should a fourth grader, you know, start to blog and build and build a portfolio to impress future employers if there's no like college age, you know, so should a seventh grader start thinking about projects that they're working on? I'm kind of intrigued if this, this track that we've been taught for since I was a kid, you know, is going away, which I agree. What does it look like to be a fourth grader or a seventh grader in school? Or are they, are, or are they even in school? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, it really, it really kind of, when you start to think about it, if you say, hey, wait a minute what if there's a better way to launch a career than just trying to get into the best college you can get? And you're like, okay, I see that. And then it's like, well, then what's the point of high school? Because pretty much everybody's high school goals are set yourself up to get into a good college. And if that's no longer the best way to get started, 
what else could I be using that high school time for? And then it sort of like works its way backwards and you start to rethink the entire education process, which is a widget forming industrial sort of process, which is like, let's take everybody, put everybody based just on age, not on interest, ability, anything else, everybody the same age in the same 50 minute chunks of the same six subjects that we just arbitrarily decide are worth learning. And you just go on this conveyor belt and you're like, oh, you're in a flow state working on something awesome. And bell rings, too bad, switch. Now you're going to a different subject. It's like, when you start to think about it, it's pretty crazy. It's kind of a horrible way to like develop skills and talents and interests. So the way I think about it, and I'm, I'm on the radical end of the spectrum here. I was homeschooled myself. I unschool my own kids. We, we don't have any curriculum. Um, it's totally learner directed. It's like whatever they're interested in, let's, let's go there. I kind of see it as the earlier you are, the more you want to lower the cost of failure and lower the cost of exploration and discovery. And so early on, it's like, let's just follow curiosity and interest. And if you get obsessed with something for a while, just ride it until you're no longer interested in it. And then try the next thing and experiment and explore. And then as you start to get nearer to where you're like, hey, this is really cool. I want to go, I want to get serious about this. Or maybe I don't know what I want to get serious about yet, but I know I need to start learning to make money and be independent, which is more often the case. Most people at 18, 20, they don't, they don't have like a true calling yet, which I think is actually good and normal for the most part. There are rare exceptions. And if you do, that's awesome. But usually you don't know yet. It's not like this is what I want to be with my life. And so trying to make the exploration and discovery process as easy as possible and the kind of commercialization and professionalization process as easy as possible and not create such a stark divide between learning phase and then like working phase. So if you're really interested in art and drawing when you're seven or eight, one of the best ways to pursue that interest is not just to go to museums, watch YouTube videos about drawing, do drawings, try selling your drawings, try setting up an Etsy store, try marketing them and let the kind of commercial component blend right in with the learning fun hobby component and break down that stark divide between those two, which is a very unnatural thing. Like kids being around business and commerce, seeing how their parents do things and make money is very, very awesome. And they, they love it. They're interested in it. And they start to not see work as this horrible thing, but as like integrated with their interests and things. And so when you have that approach and, and you can start to, whether you're in school or not, but you can start to like hey, you're interested in this. What can I do to help you pursue that more? What are some resources? Should we go check out some museum? Should we go find somebody who does this for a living and see if you can just shadow them for a day when you're 12 or 13? Can we, you know, is there a, can you set up a YouTube channel? And, and even if you're not going to monetize it, see if you can get 500 subscribers for your channel about baking. My daughters are into baking and stuff like that. And, and then as that happens, you, you get to a point where, and I saw this on Quora recently, this blew me away you get to a point where you're ready to sort of transition into getting serious about being independent financially. And you, you already understand how it works. You understand how marketing yourself, selling a product, turning your, your passion, figuring out things that you're good at that others aren't very good at. Oh, I always used to do drawings for my friends, uh, you know, avatars for their YouTube channels. I'm going to start offering companies to create logos for them or whatever. I saw on Quora, this parent was like, I'm really stressed out and conflicted. My son wants to opt out of college and instead he wants to go all in on creating his YouTube videos or whatever. 
he has a channel with 60,000 subscribers. I'm really worried he's going to fail. And I thought, okay, <laughs> he's got 60,000 subscribers. He figured out how to do that. You let him run with this thing. And the worst case scenario, he's like, okay, I'm looking for a job already having a channel that you built 60,000 subscribers on is a far better signal than a college degree. I would hire him for a content marketing role over someone who had a BA in marketing any day, right? Like she just didn't realize, didn't see that connection. Um, and so I think that's, that's kind of what's happening. You're sort of getting this, this backwards working process where people are rethinking education from the ground up. And you see a lot of like wealthy, very successful kind of elite type people that's where this sort of boom in kind of unschooling or trying these different modes of school, like more free schools or democratic schools or kids are doing a little bit more exploration. It's happening a lot there because those people are looking for what is the ideal way to set my kid up for the world that we live in today? Not the, not the farming world or the factory world of a hundred years ago. Um, and you're starting to see that happen. Yeah, that's that, that kind of points me to something that interests me and something that I've not even gotten close to cracking. So there are, you know, a, a lot of parents of today that see what's happening. They maybe realize that college is a, a path for their kid, not the path. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of parents that see college as the path. And like that, if you're, if you're not going to college, you're not going to be, you're not going to have a successful child or children. How do you ever spend time talking to parents through Praxis or, or crash? And it's so like, I would just love to hear what are those conversations like and how do they go? I, I'm intrigued. <laughs> that is the, that is where the rubber meets the road. That is the absolute last remaining bastion of resistance uh, when it comes to people say wanting to get into praxis, it used to be when we first launched six years ago that a lot of the young people themselves were very conflicted. I just don't know. I, I kind of college is boring, but like, I think I have to do it. And I'm not sure that's no longer the case. Like across the board, the people that are interested in practice, they're like, yeah, I get it. College is not going to do anything for me professionally. I get it. They're, they're like there and they're not upset about it. They're like, great. I get to save a bunch of money. Um, the parents have not, have not gotten there yet. Even the ones who, and I, and again, I'm not saying this, I'm a parent as well. So I understand there's a lot of dynamics here, but even the ones who sort of get from like a economic case or a theoretical case, what's going on in the world. And they know that there's a lot more opportunity and they know that the degree signal is not all that strong for employability anymore. The degree is no longer a, it hasn't been for a while. It is not a rational decision that people make. It's not, I mean, it's, I won't want to say it's irrational, but it's not a, it is not a practical cost benefit career-based decision. It has become a proxy for good parenting. And so it's become kind of like a, like a superstition, like a prestige signal more than anything. And, and you can see this in so many ways where okay, my whole life, I want to do good by my kids. And I guess knowing that I got them successfully out of the house and into life, if they got into a good school, went there and graduated, my work is done and everyone will praise me pretty much no matter what happens from there on out. And so you'll see if you go to the cocktail party with the neighbors and you're like, oh, you know, junior is, uh, is graduating from, you know, whatever university. Oh, wow. You must be so proud. And junior might be a complete loser. And he might be bitterly depressed and unemployable and whatever. People will still praise you. If you say, oh, my daughter, she dropped out of college. People will be like, whoa, 
oh boy, oh, oh, I'm concerned. And the daughter, she could have a million YouTube followers, be making great money and loving life and traveling the world. And they will still be concerned about her and think that she's a loser. And it, that, that has become so, t- and so it's this tremendous pressure to not have to feel like a loser or like you failed your kids. And people use that college as such a shortcut that it's like, hey, if you just go to college, and trust me, the kids that go through practice can, can agree with this a thousand times over. No matter what else you do, if you just go to college, you will get praise for it. If you don't go to college, you will get no praise at all unless and until you like exit a billion dollar company and say, there, see, I proved it to you, right? It's like you're Steve Jobs or you're a loser if you drop out of college. So it's this crazy double standard that's, it takes time. I honestly think it takes a generational change because a generation that grew up with like, my parents couldn't afford to go to college. I barely paid my way through, or maybe I couldn't afford to go to college. And I want my kids to have the best opportunity for my entire lifetime Going to college has equaled higher levels of success and status. I have had for 20 years this in mind for my kids. I've been saving money for them. Now all of a sudden they tell me, screw college, I want to, and you're like, oh my gosh, I get it. I think it's just going to take a generational shift. I think it's like too big of a status symbol to give up for the current generation of parents. But with each subsequent generation, kids who are in their early teens right now, I talk to a lot of parents of younger kids, homeschool parents especially. They think about it differently. I was just talking to one today who's like, I am proud to say we don't have college funds for our kids because why would I want to lock them into something like that? It seems stupid. And, and I'm seeing that more and more parents of younger kids. So that shift is coming, but it's a big social stigma for those parents. What a great answer. That's just uh, enlightening and fascinating. Um, I, I, I agree that it's going to be a generational shift and I'm kind of looking forward to observing as it happens. Well, I have a couple more questions for you, but we are nearing the end. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I actually have one that just popped up into my head. How did you actually hear? No. So you, I saw on your website uh, when I was doing research for this podcast, that you are, um, it says Isaac is dedicated to the relentless pursuit of freedom. Uh, I'm kind of curious what about freedom is worth pursuing and like kind of like more importantly, it seems like you're spending a lot of your time trying to get other people to pursue their freedom. What about that? You know, is like, why do you spend your time on that versus something else? (laughs) What about, what about freedom? You know, it makes you, makes you excited. (laughs) Man, I can't tell you any reason like objectively that everyone ought to value freedom in the way that I do. It is hardwired into me and I have just discovered that, the pursuit of freedom is being alive for me. And when I, and when I say the pursuit of freedom, I mean that in every aspect of the word. So um, in the very basic level, like I'm very motivated by say political freedom. If you live in an oppressive political regime, like helping people be freed from that. Now there's very little I can do in, in that regard, but um, you know, I'm very inspired by people who used to like smuggle stuff into the former Soviet Union or help people, you know, escape from, from tyrannical political regimes. Um, so in that very sort of like surface level, sort of structural sense, uh, a huge advocate of freedom, f- free markets, free minds, free people. But freedom is so much deeper. To me, it's like, if you are, if you are making decisions based on the phrase, because I have to, 
that's usually a sign of a lack of freedom, right? Like you feel there's some guilt or some shame or you feel this sense of obligation and you may end up making the exact same decision once you like orient yourself in a, a freedom oriented mindset. You may or may not, but if you do, you won't do it feeling like a victim. You won't do it feeling like it happened to you, right? And if you can back up and say, no, actually, I don't have to do anything. I'm a free autonomous being. Let's look at the costs and benefits of all these options. Okay, given the fact that if I don't do this, I'll suffer the following things. I don't want to suffer those. Therefore, I will choose to do it. Now, all of a sudden, I feel more empowered. I feel like I'm acting out of my own choice and not every choice is a choice that you love, right? You'd prefer different choices sometimes, but freedom on like a psychological level, like day to day, we have to live with ourselves, right? And wouldn't you rather feel like kind of happy and empowered and like there's some meaning? Doesn't mean easy. Being free is way harder than being unfree, actually. Um, I think if you've ever seen the movie uh, uh, Shawshank Redemption, there's this phenomenal illustration of this where this old guy who's been in prison his entire life, he all of a sudden gets out and he has become so conditioned to sort of the comfort of being unfree of the, the routine of the prison where he just sort of is completely unfree, but he's like, there's like a safety in it and he gets out and he can't even handle life in the free world. He has, he has failed to continue to cultivate the seeds of freedom. He doesn't have an identity outside of the one that was imposed upon him in that cage. And you contrast that with the hero of the movie who no matter how crappy things are, he does not let his sense of freedom die and he eventually escapes and, and goes on. But um, to me, it's such a precious thing and life is just so much more interesting and enjoyable. And if yeah, whatever phrase you want to use, happiness, meaning, whatever it is that we're all chasing, freedom to me is the word that represents that and it's a continual pursuit because there's always things that make us unfree trying to please others and trying to do things again for prestige instead of for purpose right and we're just always finding these things all the time like i'm trying to make people think that i'm cool and that's something that i can become a slave to right and so in a in a very broad sense i'm really motivated by that trying to live free myself and nothing gets me more excited than seeing someone else live free like when someone comes to me and says yeah i kind of have this idea. I kind of enjoy doing this. And if you can give them just a little nudge and be like, why not? Why couldn't you do that? Go ahead, start that company, try that thing. And you see them be like for the first time, oh, I guess I could. Like I'm free to do that. Like I don't need anyone's permission. That gets me more excited than anything on earth. And so when it comes to starting careers, just like, hey, why couldn't you? Why couldn't you go pitch Apple and try to work for them? You don't need to do all these things. Why don't you do this? Why don't you just pursue it? Right? Like, you can, the world is open to you, that, that possibility, that just gets me so excited. And uh, that's kind of my, my overall mission in life that everything else tears up to. As someone who has been pursuing freedom since I graduated college, I've not had like an actual job. I've been like going from gig to gig to gig to company to company. No, I, I wouldn't say I've found success yet, but, I, but it's all the pursuit of, of, of freedom and everything as long as you can make enough money to enable you to live, you know, and survive. And as much as you want to make to, to go on, then like live free. And it's kind of, although um, I have friends that are making triple the amount that I make now that, that can buy, you know, all these, all these things, like I'm the happiest guy I could ever imagine. And I'm happy to live off what I live off of because it's like, get to do what I want to do. It's great. And I love that you, are the same way, but more importantly, like you want other people to live free too and, and, and pursue freedom. So I love that. That's, that's, that's awesome. Well, I'll tell you real quick. I, I, one of the things that really got me 
jazzed up on this on the career side was for a number of years I worked with nonprofits and I had, I, I knew a lot of people who went to law school who are really smart. They like to argue philosophical people. So everybody's like, Oh, you should be a lawyer. If I had a dollar for every lawyer that told me they basically hate their life and wish they hadn't gone to law school and they have like gold handcuffs, man, they, they make great money and they have a lot of prestige. And, and again, there's not all lawyers. I met lawyers that love being lawyers too. Um, but you can get shackled by the very things that outside people would call success can also be a form of prison. And so just constantly getting real about what do you actually want? If what you actually want is a certain income, there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to be ashamed about that. You don't have to want to value meditation and travel or whatever, just because somebody on medium does, um, whatever you value, make it what you value really, really about you. And that's where you'll find that. That's fantastic. And uh, I, I just love that approach. Um, so I have one more question for you uh, before we wrap up. Uh, so you have um, you've definitely taught me a lot in the last 42 minutes. I'm sure you've taught the listeners a ton as well. Um, and what's cool about all this is you've, you've this knowledge and you've taken all of this knowledge and you funneled it into solutions, into companies, you know, into praxis and, and now into crash. So I'm kind of... Uh, interested you know with these two companies you're, you're pretty much building the future like crash in my opinion the way that you're building it like you're building the future however big or small it ends up being i personally think big you're, you're building it so what do you think of someone listening who also wants to build the future they want to build something that a lot of people use or a lot of people see or just a few people see their their version of that what would you tell them uh, what would you tell the people who want to build the future kind of like what you're doing get one customer um I'm I'm a big ideas guy and I I came to the conclusion that the best way to really work with ideas or advance ideas is not with thought experiments but with field experiments. And the best field experiment for an idea is is someone willing to pay for this? Because if they are, it means you're onto something. It means you're creating value. Value that didn't exist before. Someone's willing to part with resources, give them to you for whatever you made at a higher value than it cost you to put them together. That surplus is the creation of new value in the world. And that's an indicator that your idea means something. And so rather than trying to think about what's the total addressable market, what's my business plan, what's all, all that stuff can wait. Take your idea and try to figure out, is there some version of it that I can get one person to pay me money for voluntarily and go out and do that. And if that works, try to get a second person, try to get 10 people. Now you really got something going here and you can start to build something around that. But whatever it is that you want to build, whatever it is that you see that you want in the future, I would just say, go get one customer. Don't focus first on a name and a logo or investors or pitch decks. Focus on one single real paying customer and you will go farther if you can achieve that than half the startups that get off the ground. Okay, you all heard it first today from Isaac. Get one customer. Isaac, thank you so much for hopping onto the podcast. I, I really appreciate it. Hey, this has been a blast, man. Keep it up. Yeah, absolutely. I hope everyone listening has a good night, evening, morning. And Isaac, hope you have a great rest of your day. Likewise.